I was telling some people this morning, uh, I might be a little nervous, you know. What with a prophet coming back to his hometown to preach. Um, <laughs> but as I went through my introduction in my head uh, while we were worshiping earlier, I realized I might just cry through this whole thing. So um, let's see if we can make it through. Good morning, Valley Ranch. I'm happy and I'm humbled to be sharing God's word here with you in my home church this morning. I first came to VRBC 25 years ago. Here it comes. I came on a Wednesday night at the invitation of a friend. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to come back Sunday morning, but I did anyways. And that first Sunday, Amy and Lloyd Weedy invited me to their home for lunch. As I walked through the door, Amy gave me a big hug. And Lloyd, from day one, treated me as one of his own. For the next few years, Henry Deere and John Giesick, they mentored me in my faith, giving of their time and energy, sharing their hearts and their testimonies. But as I grew into adulthood, still many more of you touched my life. You bore witnesses of lives devoted to Christ and serving his kingdom. You taught me that to be a Christian was more than just loving and being loved by Christ. But being a Christian meant we ought to love others and serve them both near and far. You, the people in these pews, formed me into the Christian, the husband, the father, and the minister that I am today. So thank you, Valley Ranch, for being the church, the body of Christ to me and my family all these years. Now, for those of you thinking, I've been here for a while and I don't know who this guy is. Who is this guy? What's he doing up there? Um, Where are the people with the hair? Well, you're not wrong. Seven years ago, Valley Ranch figured they had had enough of me and sent me as far away as they could uh, to the other side of the world. Now, I'm probably only half joking when I say that, if Larry was here, and maybe he's typing this in the comments right now online, uh, but he'd probably shout amen. The reality, as Amy shared, is that my wife, Brooke, and I, and our two kids, we serve with the local church in Indonesia, and we do so thanks to your support of CBF and our ministry. Seven years ago, we left Texas for Indonesia. Moving to Asia meant no more Taco Tuesdays at Rosas, no more Capel Deli stubs, and sadly, rarely any Dr. Pepper. We left family, friends, comfortable lives, and jobs behind. For some reason, we thought that God wanted us to pack our bags, load up our toddlers, and make the 30-hour trip to the other side of the world. For some reason, we felt that God still called his people to go, to embark as pilgrims, to journey to a foreign land, and to carry the good news into dark places. And to be honest, in between flights two and three, With a two-year-old and a three-year-old crying on my lap, there was some doubt. (laughs) Thanks to Haley Parsley, who was crazy enough to join us for a few few first months, we have this pic. It's a little blurry, but I think the emotion comes through. (laughs) 
And to be honest, after the first day of looking for a house and finding absolutely nothing suitable, there was more doubt. But the kids adjusted quickly, much quicker than we did. And on the second day of house hunting, we found the perfect house. A couple days later, after all the flights, taxis, and expenses of moving across the world to work with college students, we very literally had students walking up to our house to introduce themselves to us. And so, there we've been for the last seven years, answering the call each day as students, neighbors, and friends enter our home to learn, to eat, to seek counsel, to fellowship, or to find comfort. In little and big ways, Brooke and I seek to witness to what we believe through our actions and our speech. While we've been back in Texas this semester, we've been living in a mission home in Waco. With the pandemic continuing in Indonesia, all of our ministry in our church continues to meet online, so we haven't missed a beat. We've been able to join them through Zoom with the wonder of technology. But I had to laugh a little bit, Larry chose this illustration of SpaceX for this sermon series. Our home in Waco is 21 miles away from SpaceX's testing grounds in McGregor, Texas. And without a doubt, as soon as I get on a Zoom call, they start testing their rockets. <laughs> and even though we're 21 miles away, the windows nevertheless rattle and the walls shake. A week doesn't go by without Brooke or I hearing a loud rumble and asking one another, is that Thunder or SpaceX? 21 miles away. To put that in DFW terms, that's the distance between Valley Ranch and Denton. Valley Ranch and Duncanville, Prosper and Mesquite. Imagine a fire roaring so loudly in South Dallas that you could hear it in your homes in Coppell. This is just how powerful these rockets are. Let us take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, in Acts 2, 2,000 years ago, we hear of the falling of your spirit. And when it came, there was a loud rumble like blowing wind. Lord, we ask for your spirit to fall once again, to fall in this church, to fill us today. 2,000 years ago, tongues flickering a fire hovered over your apostles. Lord, may the fire of your spirit burn in us. May our hearts burn. May the windows and the walls of our hearts rattle. And may our ears hear the rumble of your spirit's whisper today. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. As we turn the pages of our Bibles or click our Bible apps from John 21 to the first chapter of the book of Acts, we, click, we quickly learn that this book is a sequel. The author notes in verse 1 that in his former book, he wrote of Jesus' works and teachings. Now, tradition holds that the author of Acts is Luke, the Gentile physician we hear about, the companion to Paul whose name appears in the books of Philemon, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. And so the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are a two-part series. In each book, Luke writes to this man, Theophilus, a name which can be translated as loved by or friend to God. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but from Luke's introductions, we know that Luke's gospel was composed from the things he learned from eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. But in Acts, something's different. In Acts, Luke uses the first person plural. He uses the word we. And this leads many scholars to believe that Luke is not just writing the stories he's heard, but writing from firsthand experience. Luke himself is a witness to these things, and he takes up the writing of these books to, quote, write an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And maybe that's how we should think about this sermon series and the road ahead. We are reading Acts together. We are hearing from the eyewitnesses. But like Luke, we get to experience these things firsthand. We are part of the story of Acts that continues even today. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is center stage. We read of his birth, the shepherds and angels there at the beginning, and the Gospel ends with Jesus ascending to heaven. But what about Acts? Who is at the center? Now you might say the apostles, or Peter, or Paul. And yes, to a certain extent, you may be right. I mean, after all, we often refer to this book as the Acts of the Apostles. But maybe we should consider a name change. In Indonesia, we attend an interdenominational church. In the pews, there are Presbyterians and Catholics, Pentecostals, and when the four of us are there, there are four Baptists. <laughs> and while we good, freedom-loving Baptists only have one creed, which is that we don't have any creeds, in our Indonesian church, we often find ourselves reciting the Apostles' Creed with our fellow churchgoers. Now, since Larry's away, and since I won't be back for a couple years, <laughs> this is the part where you might stone me, I might commit Baptist heresy and recite the creed to uh, make a point. Um, so I'm going to read it for you real quickly. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Did you catch that? And no, I'm not talking about the Catholic Church part. Uh, the creed makes 13 claims about Jesus, and when it comes to the third person of the Trinity, it's as if it's an afterthought. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. I think many times we read the Bible like the Apostles' Creed. A lot of what we think and say has to do with Jesus, but when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's as if we're simply saying, oh yeah, I guess I believe in that too. 
For me, I think it's best if we understand the book of Acts to be first and foremost about the work of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1-2 says that Jesus, prior to his ascension, instructed the apostles through the Holy Spirit. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus' followers are instructed to remain in Jerusalem until they receive the gift God had promised. And in that, in a few days, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, he tells them that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. So that brings us to our first point of this sermon series. If the church is a rocket ship, then the Holy Spirit is our power source. The Holy Spirit is our power source. Luke Timothy Johnson, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says that the Holy Spirit was the life principle of the early church. Five times in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit fall on believers. Power, miracle, and boldness follow. In Acts 1.1, Luke writes that in this gospel, the prequel, or in his gospel, the prequel to Acts, he wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do seems to imply that the work wasn't finished. And so it's as if this time in Acts 1, between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost, the energy is building. It's growing in intensity. It's waiting to be unleashed. Now, for those of you that know me, maybe you don't know this. Uh, You probably all do. I'm kind of a sci-fi geek. My mom still puts out two Christmas trees for me each year, one with Star Wars ornaments and one with Star Trek ornaments. (laughs) I'm just remembering this is online also, so the whole world will see. But I will say I've learned more about rockets for this sermon than all my years of watching sci-fi, and it goes without saying that rockets are powerful things, especially when we think that These rockets carry people and cargo beyond the grasp of the Earth's gravity. To give you a sense of just how powerful these rockets are, the heat of SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket is comparable to about 3 million barbecue grills burning at full heat, 37 gigawatts of power. But for most of that rocket's life, as it waits on the launch pad, waiting for countdown to lift off, All that energy is bottled up, just waiting. Throughout this pandemic, I've been asking our church in Indonesia to consider this time of working and worshiping from home as an opportunity to prepare for what God would have us do once the world returns to normal. With the students and young adults we work with, we focused our studies on discipleship and evangelism, once again hoping to utilize this time of waiting to grow our faith and ready ourselves for the work ahead. Here at VRBC, children are attending vacation Bible school this week where they will be formed in the word, learning of the love of their creator. Our youth find friendship and fellowship on Wednesday nights. And a week from now, as they serve and as they sing with 8612, they'll see God at work in their lives and across Dallas. In these pews and in our grow groups, we hear God's voice calling us to be transformed, to step out in faith, to do something more. All the while, the spirit is rumbling. Be it during this pandemic or our whole lives, I think many of us are just waiting. We're huddled together in fear like the apostles in Jerusalem. 
The Holy Spirit washed over us and filled us long ago. But all that power is within us, bottled up, unused. We're still waiting on the launch pad. We're go for launch, but we're still waiting. In 1977, the spacecraft's Voyagers 1 and 2 left the Earth's orbit on their way to explore the outer planets of our solar system. On their way outward from Earth, they passed Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, sending back the first close-up pictures of these planets. Traveling at 35,000 miles per hour, they've already left our solar system, but continue to send data back even 40 years after their launch. Now, while the primary function of these spacecraft our exploration, I've always found it interesting that these ships also carry a message. In the event that intelligent life would one day find one of the voyagers, a collection of images, music, sounds, and greetings in 55 Earth languages were recorded on a gold record and sealed in an aluminum container. Carl Sagan, who led the team compiling the golden record, said, the spacecraft will be encountered in the record played only if there are advanced spacefaring civilizations in interstellar space. But the launching of this bottle into the cosmic ocean says something very hopeful about life on this planet. Now let's go back to our text for today. Verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. While the Apostles' Creed doesn't have much to say about the Holy Spirit, we learn from the Bible that the Holy Spirit comforts us, guides us, teaches us, transforms us, equips us, unifies us. And as we've touched on already, the Holy Spirit empowers us. But for what purpose? Why are we given this power? The answer is in the second half of verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How did the early church grow into a movement that spread from a few followers in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth? How do we grow as disciples and as a church in the 21st century and beyond? The Spirit empowered the early church and continues to empower believers today. The Holy Spirit sent the apostles and and continues to send us, even us here in this room, to be witnesses today. The Holy Spirit empowers us, then sends us. The Holy Spirit empowers us, then sends us to be witnesses. This power in the sending is so that we might boldly witness to our faith. Now, a couple months ago, YouTube's algorithm decided that I wanted to watch more police body cam footage, as if we all haven't had enough of that this year. I'm not sure where the algorithms came up with that, but I've nevertheless found myself in times of boredom watching interactions between the police and the public, some good, some bad, some in between. As I've watched these videos, I've realized just how crucial the role of witnesses can be. Witnesses at the scene of the accident or the crime can make or break some of these interactions. But what's been really interesting to see is just how many people, for whatever reason, are unwilling to simply say what they saw. They just don't want to get involved. Now, Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? 
And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Later in 2 Corinthians 4, we learn that for Paul, believing in the gospel means that we, the believers, must speak. Our faith in the resurrection and that this gospel is indeed good news ought to draw us to sharing with those around us what we've seen and heard. We believe, don't we? So why don't we speak? In his book, The Reluctant Witness, Don Everett shares his own story of wrestling through the fear of having spiritual conversations. He also shares research from the Barna Group showing that we, both as Christians and a culture, are having fewer and fewer spiritual discussions. We're talking about Jesus and the Bible less and less. And we're simply afraid and uncomfortable having discussions about our faith. We believe, but we're afraid. We believe, but we're uncomfortable. We believe, but we don't speak. In a way, Brooke and I have it easy in Indonesia. Rarely do I sit in a taxi or an Uber and not have a spiritual conversation of one type or another. It's not because I'm a minister, it's simply because even though religion is a source of strife and conflict in Indonesia more so than it is in the US, it's not taboo to talk about. One of the findings of Everett's book is that we, even as Christians, approach religious conversations in the same way as our surrounding culture. We don't speak. Is it that we don't believe? Do we not believe what we've seen and heard? Do we not believe that this gospel is good news? Do we not believe that this gospel is truth and light for a dark world? Do we think that the world is too blind to ever believe? Have we forgotten that Jesus opens the eyes of the blind? The truth is, friends, the world is perishing around us. Our friends and neighbors are on trial. Judgment will come soon. But we, you, each of, the, each of us in these pews, have been empowered to be witnesses. We've been empowered to speak a truth that will set them free. The early church grew because early Christians, empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, were witnesses of their faith and the truth of the gospel in their communities and beyond. But at some point, as Europe Christianized and a cultural Christianity took hold, the idea arose that texts like Acts 1.8, sending us to be witnesses, and Matthew 28's call to go and make disciples were only meant for the apostolic age. In the late 1700s, an English Baptist named William Carey wrote a book with a rather long title, and he'd probably be canceled today, but it's an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens, and it keeps going. In this book, Carey fought against the idea that the age of missions concluded with the apostles. Looking specifically at Matthew 28's call to go, make disciples, baptize, and teach, Carrie points out that the church still baptizes. The church still teaches. So why not also go and make disciples? Against the notions of that time that missions and evangelism were futile, Carrie argued that if people could travel the world, settle on different continents, learn different languages and cultures, all for the sake of trade and business, 
then they could do so for the sake of the gospel as well. And so hundreds heeded this call to go and make disciples. Hundreds, then thousands, and then hundreds of thousands. The missionary activity of the last 200 years is part of why our congregation in here in Valley Ranch is so diverse. It is likely that some of you in this room can trace your faith back to the very missionary who brought Christianity to your village or your city, witnessing to the gospel's glory sometime in the last century or two. In Indonesia, many of our students know the names of the missionaries who brought Christianity to their villages and to their islands. Let's go back once again to Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We receive power from the Holy Spirit. We are sent to be witnesses, but to where? To whom? Unfortunately, I think nowadays we often focus on the ends of the earth, and we forget our call to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We wrongly think that the call to be a witness is something that only missionaries do in places like Kenya, Thailand, or Indonesia. We think this call is not for us. It's not for me. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and for many years, I too thought that this whole witness thing, this whole idea of being a witness isn't talking about me. No, 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 no. I'm just a normal Christian. I come to church. I pray. I read my Bible. All that witnessing stuff, that's for someone else. That's Larry's job. That's something that Claudia Adame does in another country. Not me here in Capel. Not me in my apartment complex in Valley Ranch. I just need to go to work, pay my tithe, and I'm good. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria might be too abstract. After all, they might as well be the ends of the earth for some of us. The call of Christ, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, is so that we might be witnesses wherever we find ourselves. Let's bring that verse a little closer to our reality. And you will be my witnesses in Capel, Valley Ranch, South Dallas, and the Rio Grande Valley. Growing in our calling to be disciples and growing not only this church but the kingdom as a whole means that we will be witnesses in our community where things might be fairly comfortable, where people might look like us think like us, dress like us, and share a a common socioeconomic status. But it also means that as we grow, we will have to break out of our comfort zones to witness across racial, ethnic, economic, and national lines. Here, the conversations will be more difficult. These lines of separation might draw us to repentance. They might draw us to humility. And this, too, may be a witness to the transformative power of the gospel. Let's take one more step closer. And you will be my witnesses in your homes, among your families, with your neighbors, and to the end of your street. No longer should this verse be an abstract idea. Our call to grow as disciples includes witnessing to our faith in our homes, not only by praying at the dinner table, but by parents extending grace to their children, by spouses forgiving one another. 
Our call to grow as disciples means witnessing to our families, and that may mean reaching out, extending an olive branch to those that have wronged us. Our call to grow the church means that we take the bold step of introducing ourselves to our neighbors, even if we've lived next door to them for years. Our call to grow the church means we're welcoming people into our neighborhoods who may not look like us. We're welcoming people into our homes and we're inviting them to worship on Sunday morning. And being a witness means being consistent in our love and persistent in our invitation. That friend of yours may not have wanted to join your grow group last year, but maybe you should invite them again. One of our students tells the stories of when missionaries first arrived to her people in the 1820s. Her tribe was not interested in what these missionaries had to say, so they did what cannibals do. But more missionaries came, and this caused the tribe to pause and think that there must be really something to this faith if people would risk death to share it. And today, millions of Batak Christians can trace their faith to this persistent witness. Now, maybe for some of us, that's, that story puts our fears of someone rejecting our invitation to church or the anxiety of simply broaching a spiritual conversation into perspective. What's the worst that could happen? Now, I want to finish with a more recent story of witnessing at work. On a bus headed from Afghanistan to Pakistan to visit his sister, young Ahmed sat next to an elderly Christian man from Pakistan. Though Christians in both countries remain heavily persecuted, and even though other passengers could overhear their conversation, the man spoke boldly to young Ahmed of his faith in Jesus. Ahmed was intrigued, but returning to Afghanistan, there were no Christians in his village from which to learn more. Definitely no churches, and not even a Bible. A couple of years later, after the Taliban had killed his father, kidnapped his brother, and threatened his life, Ahmed's family pooled money together to hire a people smuggler to get him out of the country. The smuggler's boat dropped Ahmed and a dozen other Afghan refugees off on the shores of an Indonesian island. There, they would walk overnight through the jungle to find civilization. Ahmed would spend the next two years in an immigration detention center. In yet another Muslim-majority country, Christians, empowered and emboldened by the Spirit, crossed religious, racial, linguistic, and national lines to witness to their faith among these refugees. Ahmed believed and was baptized. He took the name of Elijah. When Elijah came to our city, he found his way into our ministry, but he did not come alone. Elijah brought others to believe to be discipled, and continues to witness to his faith. In Elijah's story, a Pakistani man witnessed in what was his Judea. Monotonese Christians preached in what was their Samaria. And Brooke and I, witnesses from Valley Ranch to the ends of the earth, were there to disciple him and other refugees 10,000 miles away from our home. Empowered and emboldened by the Spirit, we each witnessed to Elijah where God had called us. I'll never know the man who planted the seed or the Christians who watered it, but I know their fruits. In my story, a friend inviting me to youth group one Wednesday night didn't end with me being just part of this church. 
But this story continues as the church has sent me and my family to the other side of the world to bear witness, inviting others to join our church in God's kingdom. And the story of this church and the story of Acts continues with each of you. Far more valuable than a golden record floating through the cosmos, the gospel is a treasure that we carry in jars of clay, witnessing to the unseen and the internal. Valley Ranch. We are sitting on the launch pad. Our fuel tanks are full. Mission Control is ready to send us. Be it as witnesses in our homes and neighborhoods, in our offices across Dallas, or to the ends of the earth. Are you ready for liftoff? Ten. Nine. Eight.